only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Welcome to Wine Soundtrack USA. Listen to the passion with which producers narrate their winery and their world in 30 Answers. Discover their stories, personalities, and passions. Hello, friends and listeners of Wine Soundtrack. This is Allison Levine. And today I'm sitting in the barrel room with um, Max Marshak, who is the head winemaker of Gleason Family Vineyards. Now, Gleason Family Vineyards oversees three different brands within it. So, uh, Max, welcome. And tell us about Gleason Family Vineyards and uh, maybe some familiar brands people know. All right. Well, we are, as Gleason Family Vineyards, we are sort of a young company. We, the genesis of the company really started with Refugio Ranch Vineyards which is the, the love affair of Kevin Gleason and a beautiful piece of property just on the south side of Santa Inez River um, in the Santa Inez AVA. And he purchased the property and built a very small, a 27 acre vineyard from the ground up featuring uh, quite a few different varietals, but specifically focusing on red roan varietals and white roan varietals. There are a couple of kind of ringers in there with Malvasia Bianca and Sauvignon Blanc also fitting into the program. But generally he wanted to make a really fine red wine from Santa Inez and a really fine white wine from Santa Inez. And then after a few years of producing Refugio Ranch wines, the company had the opportunity and sort of the uh, relationship which brought them to purchasing the Roblar winery and vineyard, which brought in a whole nother set of wines that had been either sourced from around the state and around the county, as well as a state produced, mostly a state produced Sauvignon Blanc and red Bordeaux varietals. So they added kind of a nice set of varieties to their um, company repertoire but also started sort of the expansion of what, be, what now is um, Gleason Family Vineyards. So I believe the acquisition of Roblar occurred in 2017. And then in December of 2021, the company purchased Buttonwood Winery and Farm, which is a local sort of legacy property. Um, the the amazing sort of package that comes with Buttonwood is a what I would call a heritage vineyard for the county. Um, most of the vineyard was planted in 1983, which makes it one of the oldest vineyards in the area. It's unique in that it's an own-rooted planting, which means there's no rootstocks. Uh, own-rooted own planting of, again, mostly Sauvignon Blanc and Red Bordeaux varietals. Over the years, they've grafted in a few interesting things to create variety. They've planted some Grenache and some Syrah, and most recently, a small block of own rooted Chenin Blanc, 
So we have, you know, we're getting to know that vineyard and we have a lot of new varietals uh, coming into the, uh, into the production program. So it's wow. exciting. Well, now you joined on as head winemaker in 2020 and obviously have, um, <laughs> that's a nice overview. And I, I noticed a little hesitation in your voice as you explain everything because it's a lot of, <laughs> it's a lot of varieties and a lot of things, but I'm wondering what is your total um, case production? I don't know if you break it down by each brand or overall. Yeah. So Overall, now that we've absorbed the buttonwood production, we'll be somewhere in the 18,000 case range. Historically, Refugio has produced somewhere between uh, 4,000 and 6,000 cases, depending on, on vintage. Roblar, depending on how much fruit they've been sourcing previous to um, my winemaking presence, <laughs> uh, was somewhere in the six to 7,000 range, I believe and buttonwood was generally well actually had a pretty broad range i think between say seven and ten thousand so i think the sweet spot for each um brand is somewhere around six thousand cases if we get it all pulled together and um are you i know you said you were sourcing some fruit for the roblar brand or they have been doing that um how many acres do you have total in a state fruit so Refugio Ranch is 27 acres. Roblar is uh, 21.7, I believe. And Buttonwood is just under 42. It's a little misleading when you look at the productions from the two prop or from the three properties. Um, Refugio Ranch being only 27 acres still produces a healthy quantity of fruit. Uh, many of our plantings are 2,000 plus vines to the acre. So it's a more kind of modern uh, Santa Barbara County style vineyard where, you know, viticulture learned a lot over the years and, and moved away from those really broad, broad rows and, and wide vine spacings. Buttonwood is a good example of an older system um, where most of our plantings there are in the 870 vines per acre. And then Roblar is somewhere in between. We have some blocks that are sitting right at like that 10,089 vines per acre, or sorry, not 10,000, 1,089. And, um, and then some blocks that are over 2,000 vines wow. per acre. So um, are the wines, they're all available locally, direct to consumer, and are they also out in the market? Refugio Ranch and Roblar at this point are almost exclusively direct to consumer through tasting room and um, wine club sales. Buttonwood, over the last, I don't know, maybe 10 years, has created a relationship with um, Classic Wines, I believe it is, Bronco, to distribute a couple of their wines. Mostly it's a Sauvignon Blanc, it's an estate Sauvignon Blanc, and a rosé that they that they put out into, um, you could find it in grocery stores and things like that. Mm. Okay, enough about the winery. I'll get you off the hook on that. Let's talk about you. What is your first memory relevant to wine? My first memory relevant to wine, probably most prominent would be um, an interesting experience. I grew up in a, on a little island off the northwest coast of Washington State. 
but there was essentially no wine industry. But there was one winery and one small vineyard on Lopez Island, and the um, the winemaker had three sons who I went to school with, so I was friends with his entire family. And over the course of just growing up with these with this family, I ended up spending some time in their vineyard and. Um, then in probably late middle school and early high school, I would help them out during harvest. They would, it was a kind of an old school community style event where they would call all their friends and we'd pick the fruit <laughs> and whatnot. And I remember tasting, uh, they, they grow these interesting white hybrid varietals that are kind of hybridized from mostly German varietals. And they're very, very aromatic, full of terpenes, and they have that Kvertstraminer kind of characteristic. And um, I remember being shocked when I, because you can taste this fruit and it tastes like a terpene rich grape, you know, very, it tastes like a bouquet of flowers. And then the first time I'd, I ever tasted the wine that had come from that same fruit, and I realized how many things were the same and how many things were different. I think it was like this really <laughs> remarkable moment for me where um, the kind of, the obvious features of the product being translated were really there, and the mystery of how they had transformed was also very apparent. So huh. I think that's probably the... It's a very descriptive memory. I mean, a very significant memory. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, since then, and all the wines you've gotten to taste, was there one of those aha moment wines that you drank? Obviously, this seemed to be an aha moment of kind of connecting grape to wine, but um, a specific wine um, that was one of those aha moments of, you know, the luxury, the grandeur, the, the emotion, the shock, the awe, something about wine. Um, yeah, I was, I moved to New York City some years ago, um, in pursuit of a girl, <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, I know, you laughed. <laughs> well, you're she's, not she's there anymore. now. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, but, so, I, I'm, I, I'm a real country boy. Uh, you know, the island I grew up on, for good context, actually, is the same geographical area as the island of Manhattan. There's roughly a population of 2,000 people on Lopez Island. Uh, Manhattan, it's somewhere around 2 million. Right. So just, you know, so I was definitely a fish out of water, in, in a sense. Um, I moved there on a whim, and, you know, I didn't have any money, and I was scared. But I got a job bartending and uh, pretty quickly was sort of just blown away by the amazing food service industry that is, you know, so accessible in New York City and how amazingly dynamic it is from a ethnic and, you know, the world of cuisine is encompassed in that, in that smaller or large urban environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I started kind of delving into it uh, and wine became more and more and more interesting as I, you know, made connections and dined at interesting restaurants and interacted with people who are putting together these really fascinating wine programs. 
And at one point I was with my good friend who was my general manager um, at the Breslin and he took me down to his brother's restaurant which was Mayalino which is actually a Danny Myers mm -hmm. joint and uh, we were having some bar snacks that his brother the chef was sending out which is always kind of one of those VIP experiences <laughs> and then someone behind the bar poured us a Quintarelli it was a ripasso and I don't remember the vintage but it was very good <laughs> and, and it was one of those moments where I was like it definitely stopped me in my tracks you know I'd, I'd had a lot of different wines at that point but it was for some reason it sort of took hold of me and I wasn't sure how it was possible that it could be that good you know it was just like <laughs> it was so intensely delicious it was so pleasurable and so Obviously, those kinds of moments with wine get the wheels spinning. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so now that you're, you know, um, settled in a country lifestyle on the West Coast, and you brought her back as your wife yeah. and got her out of the city. But I'm curious, if we were to come to your home, what would we find in there? What sort of wines do you like to drink? What do you collect? Um, what are you storing? Um, I, white wines. I'm pretty boring. I'm pretty predictable. <laughs> I love Chardonnay. I love, love, love Chardonnay. From any particular places or all over? Uh, I love white Burgundy. <laughs> yeah. For me, for me, many of those wines are still just benchmark in the varietal. Mm -hmm. um, but otherwise, I'm I'm going for Santa Rita Hill Chardonnay. I think it's without a doubt world class and extremely high value. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not just because I'm biased because I've worked <laughs> with the fruit. It really, you know, I would line up my favorite Burgundies with, you know, my favorite Santa Rita Hills wines, in Chardonnays particularly, and feel really good about the way they match up. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and but to be honest, I, I don't buy very much wine. I'm definitely one of those uh, winemakers, I guess, who I will sort of, at the last minute, grab a bottle from the tasting room, you know, which, like, <laughs> I may have made. <laughs> um, or my team certainly produced or uh, yeah I'm kind of a strange wine drinker and I don't really I don't really collect wines I don't really uh, you're well, a little more at the moment I'm kind of on the fly and I love I love when a friend or, or, or someone I work with will kind of take the time and effort to put together a tasting or source really interesting bottles I absolutely love it um, so is there anything you drank recently with a meal or just with friends that would drink really well? Um, what's, hmm, <laughs> off the top of my head, I'm, I'm so, I've been distracted just because we're getting ready for harvest. Um, I'm drawing a total blank on, on great wines of late. It's like we can come back to that. Yeah. I'm curious, you know, I'm sitting here with a, a lot of wine sitting in front of me. <clears throat> there are probably about 20 bottles in front of me, a variety of varietals. Do you think there's a such thing as a perfect variety? <clears throat> yes and no. I think that when any wine is really, really great, it is the, you know, it's sort of in context is the perfect varietal. Mm -hmm. And it's always when it's matched with the right 
vineyard site and then thoughtful production and it all kind of comes together to make that wine singular <laughs> and and typical and you know as close to perfect as it can be um, if I had to choose my favorite varietals the ones that I think just day in and day out satisfy me um, Syrah is way up there Chardonnay like I said and then Cab and Cab Franc and oh. sort of the the blend the dance that those red Bordeaux varietals interesting so 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 kind of always hit high marks so perfection is really a, a personal thing perfection is really a per a personal thing of what you like as opposed to perfection for all as an ideal yeah or an object or like a, a theory of form yeah yes and no I mean I think what what's interesting to me is that well, okay, to be fair, I've never I've never interacted with the perfect wine. I've interacted with really great ones. And so I think that it's really interesting, like as a theory, we're all pursuing that perfect objective. But I, what's, why it's hard for me to say that like Syrah is perfect, uh -huh. because I've never tasted a wine that I thought was well, I shouldn't say never, but they're rarely absolutely complete on their own. So I find that blends tend to be very compelling. Um, the closer a single varietal gets to being self-sufficient and complete on its own, that is moving it towards perfection. Perfection, you know, but I find that it rarely is achieved. Ah. The elusive perfection. Yeah. So I'm curious, you, you know, you said at first to you, achieving perfection for yourself, but then also the elusive. So I'm wondering the role of wine critics and scores in that. You know, a lot of people look to those numbers that tell them what is supposed to be, in someone's opinion, close to perfection. I'm wondering, what's your opinion on wine critics and scores <laughs> as you roll your eyes at me? <laughs> That's a loaded, that is a loaded question, especially for me. I. <laughs> I have strong opinions about critics in general, um, but I will say this, I think that, I think it's okay to have sort of a control board. Mm -hmm. um, personally, I think that winemakers should be responsible for that themselves. That's why I put a tremendous amount of time and energy into cultivating my team, my my colleagues, the, the people I work closely with every day are people I work with because I trust them and because they're, they offer a different perspective, they are willing to argue with me. So I take advantage of their presence and their input to help me kind of find the truth. I might think one thing, they might think another, and I know that somewhere between the two, the wine is better off. Mm -hmm. So I really try to take advantage of, of people and opinions so that I'm not trying to make wine in some sort of vacuum or talking myself into something that's not true. Um, and I think that for the consumer, critics offer a certain safety net. Mm -hmm. 
I think like anybody with a palette, once you, if you can align yourself with someone and they consistently produce recommendations that you find to be true, then I think there's value in that. Um, unfortunately, what I see generally is that great wines get overlooked and mediocre wines get more attention than they, than they deserve. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know. Hmm. And I think that value tends to get lost in that kind of conundrum. Absolutely. Well, so speaking of um, wine drinking, as a wine drinker, red, white, or rosé? I love them all. Stiller, Rose, oh, again, yeah. so it's, a, but it's, but I'm a seasonal drinker. Um, you know, I don't, I don't find myself drinking a lot of big red wines in, you know, when it's 97 degrees. <laughs> I'm more likely crushing a, a cold bottle of rosé um, or white, but I, again, back to the kind of question of perfection, there, you know, the greatest rosé in the world still won't satisfy me in the way that a really great Cab or Sarawa. Yeah. There's just some, there's something <laughs> never quite hits at the same level. So, so speaking of hitting at the right level, um, you know, a lot of that, a lot of people, and it sounds like you've had this experience when you lived in New York and bar bites and wines and stuff like that about pairing food and wine. And a lot of times combining those two, I know I personally, but a lot of us aspire to that level of perfection or that, that, that perfect moment of synergy. So I'm wondering how you approach food and wine pairing. Are you looking for contrasts? Are you looking for similarities? Do you follow rules or is that all, you know, thrown out the window and, hey, it's hot, I want a rosé, I don't care what I'm eating? All of the above, <laughs> yeah. Um, I absolutely, I like, I'm trying to think when people ask for a recommendation, I generally tell them, like you said, look for contrast or look for sort of alignment. So, you know, if you want to eat a really, really bright salad with a lot of vinegar in the dressing, I would say get something lean and mean and crunchy or try to find something with richness and soft edges. Um, if you're eating spicy things, avoid super tannic wines because they just don't charm each other. Um, but otherwise, I don't have many hard, fast rules when it comes to wine pairing. I think, I, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus, but I think a lot of people potentially overthink it and they, uh, it, makes, it makes them anxious. And I think those great moments of, like you said, synergy with food and wine and experience or you know company, mm -hmm. they come together because the moment is there and it doesn't necessarily come from premeditation all the time. Yeah. Uh, you know, I work with our chef a lot here just on site and when we get to, if we're tasting wines, it's easy for me then to kind of translate into food and usually they're alignments of kind. Mm -hmm. um, but other than that, I would say it's still sort of abstract to me. Because uh, yeah. sometimes I think I'm going to nail it with some combination and I'm way <laughs> off. And other times 
I'm fearful of the result and it's way better than I anticipated. So, so experiment I'm, and I'm have fun. A, yeah, experiment for <laughs> sure. And, and I think just, just wait for those special moments because they're hard to, um, to produce. Yeah. yeah, you can't really fabricate them. But I'm curious, okay, we, we have a lot of wines in front of us. You make a lot more wines. If space aliens were to land on your property, which of the wines that you make would you want to present to them to say, welcome to Gleason Family Vineyards? And I mean, if you can do this quickly, you might even say, if they came to Buttonwood, you do this, and if they came to Refuge, <laughs> they do this. I don't, know, I don't know how much you want to separate them or include them. Yeah, well, I think I would have to, for each property, I'd have to choose one wine. Okay, so go for it. Um, for Buttonwood, I would choose the Red Bordeaux blend. Um, which they've um, has been labeled as Trevin over the years. Um, for Roblar, would be the same. It would be a cab-based blend um, with a lot of Cab Franc in it, mm -hmm. and maybe some Merlot and Petit Verdot. And then for Refugio, it would be Barbareño, which is Syrah with a splash of Petit Syrah. Oh, all three big reds. Well, yeah, well not they, necessarily big, but you know bigger style reds and welcome to the winery. So now you described three bigger reds with each um, each brand, but I'm curious for someone who hasn't had the pleasure to visit, um, to explore the wines um, that you're making, what do you think they're missing out on? Well, I can, <laughs> the, what you're missing out on really is variety right now. Uh, um, if you go to any of the properties, you're just embraced with a, a selection of really amazing options. Refugio offers a few things, you know, like Malvasia. <clears throat> it's one of the few places in California that grows Malvasia Bianca. Um, whether you like it or not, it's <laughs> unique, you know? Yeah. Uh, and in total contrast, the Rhone Whites at Refugio are tremendous. Whether, you know, if, and, you know, texturally, weight class, everything about those two wines are on opposite sides of the world, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and it makes, it grows just gorgeous and elegant and aromatic Grenache. And then Petit Syrah. So again, it's like, it's a property of contrast. Um, Buttonwood is sort of similar in that <clears throat> it produces these just tremendously aromatic and ethereal Sauvignon Blancs. Uh, and then, you know, beautiful, intense, kind of herbal, dusty, cab, cab franc, merlot. Hmm. So again, you know, the property just has these kind of yeah. innate contrasting characteristics. Well, speaking of the properties, you have different properties. You've, I mean, you've been in this valley for a while, but you have been on this property now going into your second or yeah, third, third, vintage, third vintage, third vintage. And you're getting to know all of the vineyards, all of the vines. And I'm curious when you're walking through the vines, what sort of relationship or have you been establishing with them? Do you talk to the vines? Um, do you, um, is there a communication that happens? Um, have they introduced themselves to you? <laughs> made a good impression <laughs> uh yeah absolutely uh i don't it's i'm very i don't i like to be in the vineyard alone as much as i take my team into the vineyard as much as possible um for me it's really just about time just spending time waiting for 
observations to kind of filter in that are either conscious or not. Um, and for me, it's less about individual vines and more about the total sensation uh, that you get from one vineyard to the next. So mm. if you spend time at Refugio, you just feel Refugio and it's impossible to quantify. You can't truly describe it. There's just this sense of what is Refugio. It's, this, it's the underlying soul of the place. And when I spend time in the vineyard, that's what I'm looking for. Whether it's Roblar, Refugio, Buttonwood, I'm trying to find that kind of pulse. Um, otherwise, I'm being analytical and you know, looking, at, <laughs> looking at leaves and thinking like, okay, why is that turning red? Or what's going on here? Is there enough water? Is there enough nutrients? Is there too much water? Is there, you know? Yeah. Otherwise, it's just analytical conversation with myself more than anything. So a little more zen-ness. So you're about to start harvest. You're getting ready to start picking. Um, you said you've built a team around you of people that you trust, people with differing opinions, but you know, you all come together. So I'm wondering, do you have any rituals that you do at the start of harvest to kick it off with your team? Um, yes. <laughs> we, we scrub the winery from top to bottom. <laughs> And actually, that's, that doesn't sound like much of a ritual, but it is. It's really, um, it's the easiest way to get mentally prepared for making a big mess is to, to spend a lot of time cleaning and organizing and getting into that, that mise en place of the chef's space where mm -hmm. everything's in its place and you, you can stop thinking about all of those details because they're all in line. So you can go to work and it can be smooth and functional, quiet. Um, I, I spend most of my time <clears throat> as a quote, you know, boss, <laughs> just trying to make sure my coworkers are tranquilo, <laughs> feeling good. Getting things done, not rushing, move, but being productive, you know, just finding that sweet spot between um, being energized and not being overwhelmed. Well, I mean, I can see that because as we spoke, you're going to start picking next week. So you've, you're, you're planning and you've got that time to do that because I've visited some other wineries that Harvest came in a little earlier and they started picking this week when they weren't quite ready, you know, in the winery with their mise en place. So yeah. um, <laughs> the Tranquilo sounds really good. <laughs> so I'm curious when you're, you know, you spend your time here and you're getting everyone calm, but when you're not here, how do you like to spend your free time? My free time, <laughs> uh, well, I have two little boys. So free time is kind of a, an imaginary, <laughs> thing, uh, but, but I, I love to um, take them. We we go. We scramble on rocks. You know, like lizard's mouth is amazing. Um, I love to fish, and the boys are starting to fish as well. Um, hiking, generally, kind of just getting off the property and finding a new environment to explore. That's generally what I do in yeah. my free time, yeah. 
And um, since you don't have a lot of free time, I'm also imagining you don't have a lot of date nights with your wife. But if you were to um, want to create um, a romantic atmosphere that was not like a crazy with the two kids and everything, just for the two of you, what sort of wines would you open to set for a romantic evening? Oh, champagne, always. <laughs> um, it's like yeah, the sign. I, I Champagne's champagne. open, champagne. kids are asleep. And, and I'm, I'm definitely not one of those, like I don't need a special occasion to drink champagne. It does not have to be a holiday <laughs> at all. You know, you talk about food and wine pairing. There's nothing I won't drink champagne with. Um, I just absolutely love it. And again, value, you know, I'll spend $60 on a bottle of champagne and be really, really happy with it. So, um, champagne sets that mood. It really does. <laughs> yeah, there's no question about it. Um, and then, if, I mean, I don't know, it depends on the wine list, too, right? Like, if we're out, like, I don't know what's available. Sometimes I just can't help myself when good things are. Are available, <laughs> like a kid in a candy shop. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, I'm curious. When you look back at your career, um, what would you say is a piece of advice? And maybe it's something that you just live your life by. Maybe it's not career oriented. But is there a piece of advice someone gave you along the way that um, you try to live or work by, or that you find handy when it comes to um, getting ready for harvest? I would not say that there was any advice that I got that really um, most of what prepared me for winemaking is just experience not in not necessarily in winemaking I think that is the most uh, I think the most important thing about winemaking is that it's really, really dynamic. It's not defined by one, one activity or one skill. Mm -hmm. um, and that's like, I came to winemaking sort of, let's say, late. But I'd done a lot of other things that set me up for the style of work and problem solving and things that one does in the industry. So, um, you know, I didn't I'm an English major. You know, I uh, I worked in construction for many years. I put myself through college, commercial fishing. I worked in the restaurant industry in New York. You know, so it's like the confluence of just a lot of different things makes me well suited for the industry for whatever reason. So when you look back at your career, what would you say is one of your proudest achievements to date? In, what, in the wine industry specifically? Or in your career. Uh, you just can't say your children. Proudest achievements. Because <laughs> we know your children are probably pretty proud achievements, but assuming that they were well behaved today. <laughs> <clears throat> I would say it was, it was taking the, it was taking the risk to jump into an internship in 2012. So, <laughs> I moved, you know, or my now wife and I, we moved from New York City. We were doing very well um, to Santa Barbara 
Neither of us had ever been to Santa Barbara. I had never officially worked in wine. And I had a, a, an internship just through, literally through meeting a guy at a bar, you know, <laughs> um, at Fess Parker. And I was, I was 28. You know, I wasn't young. Anyway, I wasn't old, but <laughs> I was 28 and I was going to go to work for $12.50 an hour in a place I'd never been. And we packed up the car and we moved to Santa Barbara. We didn't have a place to live. You know, it was totally, it was ridiculous. Um, but here we are. You yeah. Know. Wow. So I think, I mean, I love, if anything has taught me, if, if there's any great successes over the course of my working life, it's been to you know, never be afraid of the thing you're most afraid of. Like taking, taking some kind of risk, trying something new has always opened up opportunity. It's never been a, it's never been a step backwards. Yeah. I mean, that's great attitude and, and good advice to give anyone, right? Take risk and don't be afraid, especially if it's to pursue something that you love. Yeah. So I want you to complete the sentence for me. A table without wine is like? The Sahara Desert? <laughs> 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 okay, uh, another scenario. I mean, we're now gonna. Now's the fun part where you can, you know, try. Let's see. Let's see how quick you are with your answers here. But um, now we're sitting at a, at a large table here. We've got your wine on the table. You've made this wine. This is this is your baby, and you've got a seat next to you. So, who from any walk of life, living or deceased, famous or maybe not famous, but you know, would you want to share a bottle of wine you made with? I love that question. <laughs> I think maybe Willie Nelson. Huh. Yep. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Not what I would expect to hear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I might share, you know, some other sub substances with. He'll him. share other things yeah, with you. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I think I think. Yeah, that'd be a good place to start. Ah, wow. So, um, another question. Um, you're, if you were sent to a deserted island and could only take three wines with you, what three wines would they be? Chave Hermitage. Mm, Montebello Cab. And a San Rita Hill Chardonnay. Can't decide which though. Huh. Huh. <laughs> I like I like the range. Yeah. I like the range. Definitely very interesting. Range. And very clearly based on some of the wines you talked before, you picked your Syrah, you picked your Cabernet, and you picked your your Chardonnay. I'm nicely done. You're you're very on point. I get it. <laughs> so now we're going to play our little fun game I warned you about where we pair wine with music. This is just, this is the very end. So this is the, this is, this is the foot you, you leave with, um, almost. Um, got a lot of wines in front of you, so I'm going to have a little fun picking because you have no idea. So I'm going to start with, um, we've been sipping the Buttonwood Sauvignon Blanc. Um, so maybe tell us just a little bit about that wine and then what what does it conjure up for you? Sorry, which one? The Sauvignon Blanc we were sipping. It's extremely fresh. 
an aromatic, lots of energy. Yeah, the Muscat clone. Yep. Um, wait, I'm pairing this with music, right? Yeah. Is that the notion? Genre, song, album, whatever comes to mind. It's actually more challenging than I thought it was gonna be. <laughs> I, to be honest, I, there are very few times in the day when I'm not listening to music, <laughs> but it's interesting to have it, like, to think about it in that context. Honestly, I would probably put on, I would probably go with Bob Marley. Okay. Yeah. You know, okay. something beachy. It's almost a margarita, like. I like it. You know. Okay. Um, Refugio Ranch, the Malvasia Bianca. That's a total blank for me. <laughs> Poor Willie Nelson's know. not even getting any no, love. Willie, no, that I definitely wouldn't go. I wouldn't go <laughs> down the Willie down the Willie Road with that. I think um, it's it's much more uh, it's much more feminine. It's uh, I don't know. Yeah, I might go with like the Lost Broadcast. Um, Bonnie Raitt, okay. early when she's when she's young. Ooh. And um, now you mentioned a wine from each brand that you would give to the space aliens. So let's talk about the Roblar Cabernet with a lot of Cab Franc in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I would probably go for something a little moody, like some uh, Bill Evans or something. Mm. Yeah. See, if we let you pause a little, you get it, you get it. Okay, one more, because you got it. The um, Refugio Syrah Petit Syrah um, Barbarano. We would definitely go with Willie, <laughs> or maybe uh, Jerry Jeff Walker, or yeah, see, we'd, we'd, we'd go down that road. Yeah. You know, good old, you know, outlaw country, something a little bluegrassy. For sure. See how quickly, you know, you got the rhythm. Yep. <laughs> We're finished now. You don't have to do any more. <laughs> I never think, I always think in, in very musical terms, like in my own thoughts, wine mm -hmm. is kind of very musical. Um, but I've never been asked to, you know, pair a wine with a song huh. or a, even an artist. Yeah. It's interesting. Ah, you're never going to look at wine the same way or music the same way again. <laughs> So I'm curious, what wine region in the world is at the top of your bucket list to explore? Well, they all are. <laughs> to be fair, I've, I've done almost no wine travel. For huh? someone in my, you know, career, uh, that's, that's one of the kind of pieces that's missing. I spent a little bit of time in Burgundy, and it was very interesting and illuminating, uh, but you know, bucket list would definitely be parts of the Rhone Valley, um, Bordeaux for sure. I would love to see some of the South American and uh, wine regions. So the world. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think, oh, and, and Italy is, you could, you know, travel <laughs> Italian wine for the rest of your life and never, never even get started, I think. So, I don't know. You, you have a lot of travel to start planning. Yeah, you know, you can take kids to, with you. I'm going to have to retire <laughs> early and <laughs> just go wine drinking around the world. 
That's right, absolutely. Well, if someone wanted to come wine drinking here, um, where can they find you, how can they find you, and what can they experience? Uh, we, well, we have tasting rooms that are open to the public. I think all of them are open seven days a week. Refugio serves in Los Olivos. Uh, Buttonwood is just outside of Sylvain off Alamo Pintado. And Roblar is right off the 154. We have, the, I mean, exquisite tasting room environments across the board, especially the you know, the outdoor spaces at Buttonwood and Roblar are absolutely stunning and they are definitely the place to, to you know, lose a few hours. <laughs> yeah. And, and again, just a, a tremendous amount of variety and uh, quality, if I do say so. Yeah. yeah, well, you do say so. So, um, each one has their own website, but are they also at GleasonFamilyVineyards.com? I think they're all discreet at this point. So, yeah. three different websites, Refugio Ranch, Roblar, and Buttonwood Winery and Farm, or Vineyard. Um, check them out. Three great wines. Max, thank you. I know I put you on the spot. Uh, you had a lot of wine to, to have to sort through, but thank you for joining us, and let's start tasting. Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to a new episode of Wine Soundtrack USA. For details and updates, Visit our website, winesoundtrack.com.